This morning I want to share with you some thoughts on the subject of prayer from Daniel chapter 9. Uh, you might think that somehow I, I just sort of land arbitrarily on the things that I share with you in chapel, but I don't, and there are reasons for this. The other day when we were doing our little question and answer time, the issue came up about what is prayer, about whether prayer is a state in which we're supposed to listen to God or whether prayer is an act in which we are talking to God, and I am convinced that it is the latter. And I, I'm concerned that we understand prayer and that we understand it not only for the theological accuracy of it, but because of the power that it carries. I've lived long enough to see God answer prayer in monumental ways and in very small ways and in everything in between. One of the things that we're committed to in the Master Seminary, because we feel it's so absolutely essential, is we offer a course, in fact, it's a required course in the seminary for every student. It's on prayer. It's a somewhat exhaustive study of the, what the Bible teaches about prayer. Dr. James Roscup, who is the professor who teaches that class, when he was preparing the class, he was a very godly man. He was my professor when I was in seminary many years ago, and he's still teaching and now at our seminary. And I said to him, I said, Jim, how are you going to prepare for this class? And uh, he said, well, I'm going to do some reading uh, extensively through all the Scripture and everything the Bible has to say about prayer, and then I'm going to do some other reading on books. And so at the end of the summer, I saw him and I said, well, how did your summer go? Uh, what did you do? Did you accomplish uh, what you wanted to in regard to the subject of prayer? And he said, yes. Uh, I said, well, what did you read? And he kind of dropped his head and said, uh, I read uh, every book uh, in print on, on the subject every book in print on the subject? Well, he said, I, I certainly want to make sure that we, we, we teach these men to pray appropriately. Well, the assignment for the class is one hour of private prayer every day. And you know, for men in seminary, that's very, very difficult. When you first start to try to pray an hour, very, very challenging not to have your mind go off somewhere in about three minutes. It is a discipline that is so rich and so rewarding. I have a very dear friend, and you know him for obvious reasons. I'm not going to ruin his eternal reward by telling you who he is, who is just, I think, yesterday or the day before completing a 40-day fast and prayer. And I asked him, why so long and why so intense? He said, because I'm embarking upon a new ministry for which I am not worthy and I am not capable. Forty days of fasting and prayer. In my own personal life, I have known some prolonged fasts, and they have been the most rich and intense times of prayer and spiritual blessing in my memory. I've never gone beyond nine days of absolute fasting and prayer, and never uh, have I known more of the power of God expressed in my life, the joy of the Lord, the purpose of God unfolding, than during those times. And I believe that God hears and answers prayer. I think you know, some of you do, my son Mark, who graduated here a few years ago, when it was discovered that he had a brain tumor that could be fatal, I embarked upon one of those periods of time, prayer and fasting. A couple of years ago, my wife broke her neck and I uh, embarked upon another one of those. And in, through those times, there is a tremendous spiritual reward. In both cases, God was merciful and gracious and the tumor was benign and my wife's paralysis, God wonderfully healed. And I've seen his hand repeatedly through the ministry that uh, he has given to me. I remember 
1985 when I came here, this college was hanging by a thread and it was all a matter of prayer. We had uh, two-hour prayer meetings through the week. Every morning we would gather, I think it was on Monday and often another day, and pray for two hours on our knees and ask God to do His will in this college. And we pled with Him to, to save it and build it and strengthen it. And you're obviously part of the answer that God brought us to that prayer. And I know that when we get into a situation of studying Reformed theology or studying the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, it's very easy for us to sort of just eliminate prayer because God's in control of everything anyway. And He's going to call all the shots. And if you are a quote-unquote five-point Calvinist or even a good four-point Calvinist or even a, you know, a disillusioned three-and-a-half-point Calvinist, uh, one of those points, I suppose even if you're a two-point Calvinist, one of those points is bound to be the sovereignty of God. If it's no more than the sovereignty of God and... Uh, uh, perseverance of the saints, that you believe uh, God is in charge and people stay saved. And uh, you, you need to think through how you could believe those two and not the rest. But, but the point is, we tend to land real hard on the sovereignty of God, not always from a biblical viewpoint and not always from an honest theological viewpoint, but sometimes just because of our weaknesses and we would just rather dump the whole thing in God's lap and let His sovereignty take care of it than to be responsible to get into the battle on a whole bunch of fronts, including the battle in prayer. Sometimes uh, we can conveniently believe in the sovereignty of God and uh, in His divine election of those who are to be saved, and it becomes an excuse for our indolence in terms of evangelism. And it can easily become an excuse for our laziness with regard to prayer. So I want to have us look at this matter of prayer, and, uh, and rather than just talk topically about it, I want to show you what I think is the model prayer of the Old Testament. It's not the only one, but it's a very important one in Daniel chapter 9. There's a lot to be said about Daniel, as you well know. The man uh, was an absolutely remarkable man. Uh, by the time you get to chapter 9, you've already learned that Daniel is uncompromising, that he is bold, that he is full of faith, unselfish, humble, resistant to the world, persistent, holy, incorruptible. Um, I can think of some more words. Consistent, trustworthy, virtuous, obedient, uh, worshipful. And now you come in to chapter 9 and prayerful. The man was a man of great prayer. Amazing, amazing man. Um, you would think that the prospect of being thrown to a lion's den might alter your prayer life. It didn't alter his. He was faithful to pray knowing the consequence because he knew the power of prayer. He knew the communion of prayer as he poured out his heart to God. And in this ninth chapter, Daniel prays. And there's no better way to learn to pray than to listen to a man who really knows how. And that man is Daniel. And the characteristics of this prayer are what I want to I, I want to show you because it's so very, very important. Very important. As you come to the end of chapter 8 in Daniel, just a little note so you set the context. Uh, Daniel has been stricken physically. I mean, literally, he is, in, he is ill. He is sick. He is in physical pain. He is hurting. He is aching. Why? Did somebody hit him? Did, somebody, did he have an accident? No. His physical condition is because of his extreme burden for his people Israel. And that tells you something that's really outside the, the prayer here. The man felt deeply about people around him and about their spiritual condition. In fact, he was literally crying. He was just broken hearted because of the tremendous distress that he felt. In fact, look at verse 27 of chapter 8. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. His heart was so broken and so grieved, and it wasn't over anything personal. 
You don't find the great prayers of the Bible built around some man's personal disappointment or lack of fulfillment. The great prayers of the Bible will usually only touch on the individual praying with regard to his great sense of sinfulness. Prayer for these men and women is not a matter of asking God to elevate their comfort level. Prayer is, in all cases, directed on behalf of someone else, and they are able to feel so deeply the pain of other people's spiritual distress. That's really underlying this whole matter of prayer. The Medo-Persian kingdom has come. Daniel has been in captivity for a long time. He was taken into captivity when the Babylonian kingdom was still in place. He is 80-plus years old by now. He ranks very high in the palace. He has survived the Babylonian Empire, transitioned right into the Medo-Persian Empire, and sits in a very prominent place. He has been used by God to explain two divine revelations in visions to Nebuchadnezzar, the prior king. He has been through uh, Babylon's feast. He has experienced the power of God saving him from lions. And here he is, probably in the very same year as the lion den experience. And as we come to chapter 9, he's reading the Old Testament. Let's begin. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books. Now here he's doing what every godly individual certainly longs to do and cherishes to do. He's studying the Scripture. The books or the scrolls, are not just any books, but they are a collection of Old Testament writings, including Jeremiah. He was reading Jeremiah's prophecy. And specifically, he says, he was reading in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now remember that... um, There is what is called the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. And Daniel is reading in Jeremiah. He is in it. He is in that captivity. The 70 years is nearly up. And he comes across the reading in in Jeremiah. And it reminds him that Jeremiah predicted that this captivity would only last 70 years. And Daniel knows that the 70 years is nearly up. So here he is reading the Scripture. He's longing for an end to Judah's captivity. He knew the 70 years was nearly over. If you start with the first deportation in 605 or the second deportation in 597 um, B.C. or the last deportation in 586, still by this time, the first year of Darius, the 70 years is nearly up. He saw this as the imminent end of the 70 years. That's what prompted his prayer. That's what stimulates his prayer. He sees the terrible, terrible condition of his people. He is sick about it. He sees them as captives in a pagan land. He longs for a spiritual revival and a return to the land. And it's this passion in his heart that leads him to pray on behalf of his people. And the prayer then begins in verse 3. But let me tell you some things about prayer. I'm going to give you a handful of points that you learn from this that really are absolutely crucial things for all of us to learn. Let me share them with you. True prayer, number one, is always in response to the Word of God. It's always in response to the Word of God. We pray in response to Scripture, and that is exactly what happened to Daniel. I can can tell you this from a practical standpoint. I've 
lived the Christian life a long time, and I've spent a lot of time in prayer through my Christian life. None of us feel like we've prayed as much as we should pray, but I'll tell you this, even after all these years and lots of responsibility and lots of things to pray for and a, a fairly good handle on mental discipline, I find that the only way that I can pray over a prolonged period of time and the most productive way that I can pray over a prolonged period of time is with an open Bible. With an open Bible. I've, I've said through the years to young pastors, the most the best times of prayer that I ever have are when I am in my study with an open Bible. Because it is as the Word of God comes to me, as the Scriptures are open to me, as I understand the heart of God, the mind of God, the purpose of God, the will of God, that it elicits prayer out of me. I very often just open to the Psalms and start to pray and just pray my way through the Psalms. Pray my way through a Psalm, borrowing the words from David or whoever the writer of that psalm might be. Here, Daniel is prompted to pray because the purpose of God is revealed in the Word of God. And when he contacts the Word of God and that part of Jeremiah which says God only intends this for 70 years, he is stimulated to pray with respect to the Word of God. I say that so that you might understand this. Prayer is tied to the purposes of God revealed in the Word of God. Again, it takes it sort of out of that mystical category, Daniel recognized that prayer was an element of the fulfillment of God's purposes. He saw the certainty of divine purpose, God says, 70 years. He knew God was sovereign, but he still prayed. He could have said, well, hey, the 70 years are nearly up and you're a sovereign God, nothing to pray about. Nothing to pray about. But he didn't. Because prayer basically lines up your heart with God's purposes. It isn't to change the mind of God, although there are times in the New Testament when it appears that God changed His mind in response to prayer. The, the purpose of prayer is to line your own heart up with the purposes of God. Prayer and the Word are inseparably linked, therefore, because the purposes of God are unfolded in Scripture. The Word generates prayer. When I read my Bible, for example, and it speaks about the character of God, I long to praise Him, and that's a component of prayer. When it speaks about the judgment on the wicked, I want to plead for Him to be merciful and gracious and save them. When I read the Word of God and it speaks of sin, I feel conviction and I want to confess my sin. When I read the Word of God and it speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ, I want to say with John, even so come Lord Jesus. When I read the Scripture and it says that God loves sinners and wants to redeem them, I want to cry out and say, God, redeem sinners, redeem sinners. And here are a few I'd like to suggest that you could start with. See, it is the Word that begins to elicit prayer, to, to generate prayer. When the Bible speaks of promise, I cry out to God and say, Lord, fulfill it, bring it to pass. How many times have I prayed as a pastor? Jesus said, I'll build my church, I'll build my church. Lord, please build your church and build part of it right here and let me be a part of that building by your grace. When the Bible speaks about chastening, I want to avoid it. And I ask the Lord to, to guide me and guard me and protect me so that I don't have to experience chastening. When the Bible speaks about rewards, I pray about the fact that I want to have a full reward that I can cast at His feet. When the Bible speaks about hell, I want to pray for mercy for the lost. When the Bible speaks about heaven, I can only think of those that so desperately need to be there. It's really the Word that forms the groundwork of all of our praying and that's why I say praying with an open Bible is really the way to pray. 
Daniel's prayer is born out of the study and understanding of the Word of God. And and quite the contrary. Daniel knew it would be 70 years. Daniel knew God was sovereign. And that was all the more reason to align himself with the purposes of God and to cry out of his troubled heart that God would do what God promised to do. He never really took anything for granted. And if your view of the sovereignty of God has a negative effect on your prayer life, you've perverted that doctrine. You've misunderstood it. If your view of the sovereignty of God causes you not to be faithful in sharing the gospel with everyone that the Lord gives you opportunity to share with, if somehow your doctrine of election cuts you off from aggressive evangelism, you've perverted that doctrine because that's not what it's intended to do. It is intended to encourage you that Almighty God is working to save while you are witnessing and presenting the gospel. Secondly, prayer is not only generated by God's Word, but it is grounded in God's will. And we've already hinted on that, but let me just take it a little further. In verse 2, he says, I I read in the books, that's the book of Jeremiah, it's twice I should mention if you want to jot it down, uh, just so you know, it's twice in the book of Jeremiah mentioned, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, and 29, 10, that the captivity would only be 70 years. So he said, I was reading it. And it unfolded again the word of the Lord to Jeremiah for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This this was very, very important to note. Again, back to the idea, you might say, well, look, it's the word that elicits prayer. We said that. And it's the will of God revealed in the word that grounds our prayer. Our prayer should be consistent with God's will. I mean, this is all over the scripture. Prayer is necessary, listen, because God is not asking for us to be fatalistic, not at all. If your theology hampers your prayer life, it's a bad theology. We want to line ourselves up with with God's purposes. We want to line ourselves up with His will, but not fatalistically. Let me give you an illustration of it. And there's so much to say about this, I'm trying to edit a little on my feet here. But look at 1 Samuel 12. This is a very important lesson for all of us. But in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19, Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Now, you remember the people wanted a king because everybody had a king. And so the Lord allowed them to have a king. I, I think he purposed that there would be a king eventually, but the right king, not the wrong king. And so now they feel guilty about this, and they, they say to Samuel, pray to the Lord that we may not die. Pray, please, and ask God not to kill us, for we have added to all our other sins this evil by asking ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, don't fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. It's true, you've sinned, but continue to follow the Lord. You must not turn aside. For then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. This is very important. They said, pray that we don't die. Pray that God doesn't kill us. To which Samuel says He's not going to kill you because He can't kill you because you're His people and He has to preserve His own integrity and He has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. He is not going to kill you. Now that sounds like an open and shut case. Why pray, right? Why pray that God's not going to kill you if God has a covenant uh, about your preservation? 
Well, there's more to it than that. Verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. What? On the one hand, he just said, you don't need to fear dying because God is not going to abandon his people on account of his great name because he's pleased to make you a people for himself. He's not going to change the plan. In spite of that, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. In other words, Samuel is admitting, I don't know how my prayers fit in with the eternal sovereign purposes and promises of God. I don't know how my prayers fit in with the eternal will of God, but I know this, not to pray is a what? Sin. It's a sin. We can't know the the, uh, inscrutable ways of God. We can't delve into the incomprehensibility of God's mind. I don't know how sovereignty works together with intercession, but that's not my problem. The issue with me is just to pray. And if I don't pray, I have sinned against God. Now, when we pray, we are to pray consistently in God's will. 1 John 5, very important text. Verses 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask according to his will, he hears us. Now, where then, where are we going to find God's will? Where are we going to find it? Here. Here. That's why I say you pray with an open Bible. True prayer is in response to the word, and it is associated with the will of God. We are, we are to be totally given to God's purposes, but that doesn't mean we're fatalistic. That doesn't mean we just sort of say, oh, well, you know, God's going to do what He's going to do, so dear Lord, go do what you're going to do. It's not a prayer of bitter resentment. It's not a prayer of a passive resignation. It's not a prayer of theological perspective. It's not fatalistic. And Jesus even said in Luke 18:1, at all times pray and don't lose heart. At all times pray and don't lose heart. We're not talking about prayer being some gray uh, acquiescence where we mumble off some meaningless words without any passion because we're we're confident that God's going to do what He's going to do anyway. That isn't how it is. Prayer, and, and this is very important to understand, prayer is a form of rebellion. Prayer is a form of rebellion. It is a form of rebellion against the world and against its its fallenness It's a form of rebellion against Satan and his kingdom and darkness and sin and sinners. It's a form of rebellion against the whole realm where God's will is not done. Prayer in its purest sense goes like this. God, I see your will revealed in Scripture, but I don't see it being done in the world. And I love you so much and I'm so devoted to your holy purposes. And I am so moved by by the fallenness of this world that I plead with you to do your will. That's the heart of prayer. Daniel knew there was sin. He wasn't going to accept that. He called for God to purify His people. Even Jesus was no fatalist. Jesus manifested Himself a non-acceptance of status quo. He comes to the garden and He says, Father, I know this is Your will. I know this is Your will, but if there's any way, would You please let this cup pass from Me? There was a rebellion against sin. And so, Jesus Himself illustrates this this decrying of the status quo. To pray for God's will means that I can't tolerate the way it is in this world. I can't tolerate the effect of sin. 
Even when I pray for someone to be healed of a disease, that's a prayer of rebellion against the sicknesses that are the result of sin in this fallen world. That is what James calls the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that has great effect. It has great effect. You can never lose your anger over sin. You can never lose your resentment of the fallen world. You can never lose your antipathy or animosity toward the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that dominates a society. You can never lose your, your hatred of death. Do you know that Jesus Himself was there at the grave of Lazarus? And what did He do? He cried. And somebody might say, why in the world is He crying? He's about to raise the guy from the dead. It says in John 11.35, Jesus wept. He sobbed uncontrollably. Why? He he had the power over death. He was going to bring Lazarus right out of the grave. What was he crying about? He was crying because he could feel the agony, the rebellious agony in his own heart over the fact that this was just one illustration of a whole humanity that would perish under the power of death. And he resented it. He resented it. You can't lose your anger with sin. You can't... You can't cease to passionately seek for truth. I mean, as a teacher of the Bible, as one who is called of God to preach, I could step back and say, oh, well, God's going to redeem everybody that He wants to redeem. Their names are already written down. The whole deal signed, sealed, and delivered. He's going to build His church. So what's the difference? And if churches wander off in apostasy, let them go. You can't do that. You can't be fatalistic because the Scripture demands that we passionately pray for God's will to be fulfilled. And Daniel knew that. So prayer rises from the Word and is always grounded in God's will. Well, we could say more. Let me give you a third point. And we're barely into this thing, but let's go one verse, verse three. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Pretty intense, right? Now then you say, well, what's what's the request here? Is is his wife dying? No. Are his sons and daughters on the brink of death? No. Does he have a terminal illness? No. What is the issue? The issue is he is sick and exhausted and pained over the sin of Israel. He resents the fallenness of the world. He resents the sin. He resents the violation of the will of God. He resents all this holiness and it eats at him so deeply that he has to pray. And when he prays, he prays with tremendous passion. How do you know that? Well, look. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I mean, he really gets into this. I set my face. Literally, I I set my face in the Hebrew. I gave my attention resolutely to the Lord God, Adonai, the Master, Lord, Sovereign One, to seek by prayer and intercession. And then he stresses his diligence, fasting, sackcloth, ashes. He would put on, they would put on you know, rags and dump ashes all over their heads to show humility and mourning. And this was his condition. And he stayed that way until the answer came. Look down in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before my, the Lord my God on behalf of the whole... Verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, boom, then comes Gabriel the answer, with the answer. The whole time he's in this prayer, he's just pouring out his heart. 
And again, just to note, you, you see fasting linked with prayer. Fasting is always linked with prayer. It's not an exercise in losing weight. It's not sort of a spiritual Jenny Craig deal. Fasting doesn't have anything to do with weight loss. It's not an, uh, although it affects that. Fasting in the Bible is always associated with prayer and with that kind of heartfelt, intense concern that just is so overwhelming you have no appetite. Sometimes you'll see someone praying uh, for a loved one who's dying in a hospital and people always say to them, well, you need to eat something, you need to eat something. That's the worst thing you could say to them. First of all, the churning of the stomach when you're in tremendous anxiety uh, makes food a problem, not a solution. You don't do that. You don't need to eat. You hear people say in times like that, I really don't feel like what? Like eating. Why? Because they feel the pain and the agony down here. And it causes the stomach uh, to function in a way that it doesn't receive food well. It's a sickening thought. Plus, they're so preoccupied that they want to set themselves apart from earthly things. I, I know that in, in the time when I was praying for Mark, through that time when they said he might die, and I just went before the Lord and for nine days and prayed and fasted before the Lord, I had never had an appetite for nine days. And it's amazing how much uh, was already in there for my body to feed on, and it survived fine. And I was never hungry. And I, in fact, I was never hungry at all, even when I started to eat and when I felt that the t- time had come for the fast to end and, and God had heard the prayer. I, didn't, I wasn't hungry then either. But it was a time of intense prayer. I've since many times um, confessed to the Lord that I should have had that same kind of intensity, that same kind of fervency, and that same kind of passion for somebody who wasn't my son, somebody who was outside my family, and asked the Lord to give me a greater passion for prayer for those who aren't that close to me. It's understandable that I would pray that way for those that are most precious in my life. The question is, can I pray for people who aren't that precious with the same kind of passion? And I confess that I fall short in that area. Daniel gives me a great example, a man who could go to the extremes of passion with regard to other people. So Daniel employs every indication of persistence, every indication of passion. He uses every argument in his siege on the heavenly citadel to try to ask God to work and work immediately and fulfill his purposes. You know, this is such a wonderful reality. The point is simply this. God has set out the purposes and he's included our prayers in their unfolding. But somehow our prayers work to his ends. How? I don't know. But that's not mine to understand. My brain can't contain it. Let me give you another thought. And maybe I'll just get close with... uh, should Luke 18, I, I need to mention, I mentioned it earlier, but I need to just mention Luke 18 with regard to this one point. Because here Jesus tells a story about persistence in prayer. It's a very important portion to read when you learn about prayer. He tells a parable, in verse 1, that all times you should pray and not lose heart. And he tells about a judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect man. And there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because of the, wi- the widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wears me out. I'm going to protect this woman because I'm sick of her coming. And Jesus' point is, if an unrighteous judge would do that for a widow that he doesn't even care about just because she keeps asking, what would a righteous, loving God do in response to the persistent prayers of those who are his own children? 
That's the point. Jesus is teaching us to pray persistently, persistently, persistently. So true intercession is generated by the Word of God, grounded in the will of God, and characterized by fervency. A fourth thought. It is accompanied by self-denial. It is accompanied by self-denial. Real prayer is selfless. Selfless. In the sense that it, it is very humble. Verse 4. And he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from Thy commandments and ordinances. This is so very important. There's really no self-confidence here. There's no self-assurance. There's no self-seeking. There's no self-righteousness. It's all lost in true prayer. He lays the axe at the root of his own tree of pride. It reminds me of Abraham who came to God in Genesis 18. He said, I have taken upon me to speak to the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. And he is saying, I prayed to the Lord my God, confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. In other words, it's an attitude of humility. You come in prayer as one who knows he doesn't even deserve to be there. The soul is clothed in a just shame, a complete self-denial. Daniel knows that whatever ascends the holy hill, of course, must have clean hands and a pure heart. He knows his own life isn't all that it ought to be, even though it's better than others. He knows he falls short of the standard of purity, and so he comes with a certain brokenness, with a certain humility. And I would add a fifth thought to that brief one, just because our time has gone. Generated by the Word of God, grounded in the will of God, characterized by fervency, accompanied by self-denial, and strengthened by confession. The way to start prayer is the way Daniel does, with the confession of his own sinfulness. Because until you've dealt with sin, you can't get past that point to the rest. And so, and you notice he's a, quite an amazing guy. He's so humble. He hasn't committed all these sins. The people have, but he lumps himself with them. Look at verse 5. We have sinned. Verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 8. Open shame belongs to us, to our kings, our princes, our fathers. We have sinned. Verse 9. We have rebelled. Verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now, here is a genuinely humble man. He's not praying, they, 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 these bad people. He lumps himself right in with all the rest. He has a broken and a contrite spirit. And, you know, I've told young people so many times through the years that they always say to me, you know, when you're a young Christian, you fight temptation, you fight sin, you fight it all the time, and you fight it all the time. Do you ever get to the place where you, you get victory over it? Answer, yes. There will be a decreasing frequency of sin in your life, but at the same time as you mature, there will be an increasing hatred of sin so that though you sin less, you hate it more and you'll see yourself as worse than ever the more you mature in Christ. And that's where Daniel is. That's where he is. He's willing to lump himself with all of his people 
And Isaiah did the same thing in Isaiah 6. He said, I come from a people with dirty mouths and I myself have a dirty mouth. And so prayer is always strengthened with honest confession. Always strengthened with honest confession. One last point. The purpose of prayer is the glory of God. And I don't have time to go through the whole prayer. But he continues to confess all these sins. And then go down to verse 16. And this is so important. So important. In the end, as you think about prayer, generated by the Word of God, grounded in the will of God, characterized by fervency, accompanied by self-denial or humility, strengthened by confession, finally it ends in the glory of God. Verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all Thy righteous acts, let now Thine anger and Thy wrath turn away from Thy city Jerusalem, In other words, stop this judgment, send your people back, restore your land, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. Verse 17, so now our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant. Listen, here it is, for thy sake, O Lord, for thy sake. Lord, it's not good for your reputation. It's not good for your reputation. I'm very conscious of that. Uh, Sometimes when I'm praying for the student body of Master's College, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for our faculty, I'm praying for our leaders here, uh, not only for their personal lives, but I'm praying that they would never do anything in their lives that would bring shame on the Master, the Lord. That's, That's so important. That's what Daniel is saying. Lord, if you don't do something, your name is at stake. You must do something. Your name is at stake. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. I mean, it has your name on it. Can't you see that? We're not presenting our supplication before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. And then this, oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, oh Lord, listen and take action for thine own sake, oh my God. Because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Your name is at stake in this deal. Do what brings you glory. Do what brings you honor. The captivity of Judah, the non-existence of the temple which had been destroyed, were interpreted by the nations to mean that Jehovah was not powerful. That God was powerless or else he was a delusion. And Daniel says, God, vindicate your name, vindicate your name, vindicate your name. And Jesus had the same attitude. Uh, when he when he prayed to the Father with regard to Israel, because the Father's glory was at stake. And that's always the culminating reality in prayer. Prayer is for God's sake. Put yourself on display. Put yourself on display. Don't let your name be dishonored. And so in the end, if you prize God, if you love God, if you adore God, if you glorify God, if you're consumed passionately with His character and His exaltation, then those things are going to break your heart. You're going to pray passionately when God is dishonored. Well, there's a quick look, really, at a pattern for prayer that you ought to become very, very familiar with. And I encourage you to say that God brought Daniel a glorious, glorious answer. But that's for another time. Father, thank you for a time to have a little devotion this morning on this matter of prayer. And we want to be men and women of prayer and faithful in that area. And Lord, we are so unfaithful to pray as diligently and as faithfully as we should. Forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive us for not being so passionately consumed 
with the needs of others so passionately consumed with your purposes, so diligent in the word that, that we are just dominated by the need to cry out to you on behalf of those things which bring you glory. Make us people of prayer, selfless, consumed with praying for others, and that you may be exalted. And Lord, help us to see that indeed the effectual fervent prayer of righteous people has a tremendous effect. Show us your power, Lord, as you answer prayer. We pray in Christ's name.